Hi, this is Mark Rabin. Before the episode, let me quickly tell you about my new book. It's titled Measures of Success. It's a book that will help you react less to your performance metrics, every up and down in those. It'll help you lead better. It'll help you improve more. So you can learn more about the book by going to www.measuresofsuccessbook.com or you can search Amazon. It's available as a print book, a Kindle book. It's available through Apple Books. I hope you'll check it out. Hi, this is Mark Raven. If you like this podcast, you might realize I have a blog, leanblog.org. Did you also know that I have another podcast called Lean Blog Audio? And there I basically, occasionally, or as often as I can, I read audiobook style versions of blog posts. So you can go to leanblog.org slash audio or search in your favorite podcast place for Lean Blog Audio. I hope that'll give you something else uh, that's food for thought, something else to help you in your lean journey. Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 276 of the podcast. It's March 8th, 2017. My guest today is a lean consultant, although he might not, I know he doesn't prefer that term. He's also an author. He is AJ or Andy Shepard. Andy is the author of the book, The Incredible Transformation of Gregory Todd, a novel about leadership and managing change. He also contributed a chapter to my Practicing Lean book project. If you go to the blog page for this episode, leanblog.org slash 276, you can find a link to Andy's bio and website, uh, to his book, to uh, the Practicing Lean book webpage, and you can also download a free PDF of his chapter. So Andy is a coach for leaders of change. His core expertise is helping workforces to quickly achieve systematic change in practice. A former McKinsey & Company consultant, he's now spent 18 years working out this art of transformation in diverse industrial environments across the USA, Europe, and Asia. He continues to draw from prior experience of navigating change in corporate environments and experiencing it on shop floors. So you can learn more about him. His website is www.ajshepherd.com. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. We're going to touch on lean change management, the term he prefers over change management, the need to balance empathy and urgency, and a whole lot more. You can also go, I've been doing this on recent episodes, go again to leanblog.org slash 276. You can find a PDF summary of the podcast, which you can share with colleagues. You can use it as a way uh, to share some of the things we talk about here to introduce people to the podcast. I know you're listening. Some people out there like reading more than listening, and that's one of the reasons why we're doing these summaries. So as always, I want to thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Andy, hi. Thank you for being a guest here on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. Where are you uh, joining us from today? Um, I'm from working from my office in Worcester, which is in the middle of England, and um, yeah, I've been based in in and around Worcester probably for about the last 10 years. Yeah, well, and and beyond where you are, um, can you give the listeners kind of an introduction to to yourself and and some of your background here as we uh, get into the discussion? Sure. Um, I'd probably describe myself uh, or start by describing myself as a a manufacturing man. 
I'd probably say plant guy if I was talking to uh, my American friends. Um, I love manufacturing plants. I love the blend of people and and products. Uh, I love that manufacturing bring together people from all sorts of different backgrounds uh, to focus them on on adding value. I love that they provide employment for local communities. So uh, I started working at a local um, industrial unit on the shop floor as a teenager. Um, I then worked in, uh, I studied manufacturing engineering, uh, then became a manufacturing engineer and and worked for um, uh, for a large company, uh, made tin cans. Uh, I then became a management consultant and uh, it's there that I discovered a radical approach to changing an entire operation very quickly. In fact, uh, I was shocked by to discover such a thing. And, uh, and 18 years later, I still practice that approach. Yeah. So I now work independently and um, I would probably describe myself as a leadership coach because most of my time is spent helping leaders to lead their organization through a transformation process. So, and, and, and that's going to be, I think, an important theme for our conversation here. The problem is uh, probably uh, less about a lack of use of tools or a lack of understanding of tools and, and more about the broader uh, leadership challenges and change management challenges, right? Uh, that's exactly it. And in fact, um, focusing on the tools, um, yes, that, that's, that's not the whole thing, but that's also problematic in itself because uh, it means that you're ignoring the bigger picture. Yeah. Maybe, okay. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I'm sure we'll maybe talk about that later, but um, uh, certainly what I found is that um, learning what to do is one thing, but, uh, but knowing how to do it, uh, how to lead your organization to overcome change is, uh, is quite something else. And uh, that's what I seem to spend um, more of my time on uh, nowadays. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I I love. I mean, the approach applies to all kinds of organisations, but but I love nothing more than working with a mixed group of people uh, in a manufacturing business to work together and to help them to achieve in practice more than they probably more than any one of them could have imagined achieving them uh, themselves. Yeah. Well, and you're the um, second podcast guest I've had this year who started uh, in uh, you know a frontline production manufacturing role. Isaac Mitchell from episode 271, who works in lean healthcare today, had similar experience. And you know, thinking back to that, I mean, how how do you think that influences the work you do today? Having you know kind of worked directly there in a, you know, a frontline value adding role that way. I think it really helps my empathy. Um, that's the main thing. Uh, I think probably the two biggest qualities that you need to blend to manage change is en uh, is empathy and urgency. You need to be able to put yourself in somebody else's point of view to understand what their perspective is in order to be able to communicate properly to them and to understand their concerns and uh, and to draw out what they have to offer. And, um, and yes, I... I um, I can certainly relate to what it's like to be on the shop floor and not really understand the bigger picture. Yeah, and I think uh, 
Boy, I, I, back when I worked in manufacturing, um, I knew leaders who had a lot of urgency, but very little empathy, if none at all. Yeah, and, and that's that, right. And that led to a very you know, dysfunctional, combative, us versus them sort of environment, unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. And I've seen the, the opposite extreme as well, where there's a lot of empathy and a lot of people try and draw out what, uh, what em, em, you know, employees have to say. And in fact, everyone wants or somebody might want everyone to have an opinion. But actually, if you're going to change something, you need to overcome inertia. And the only way you can do that is by building momentum and by bringing people with you. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that, you know, there, there, there's a phrase that gets used, you know, the, the quote unquote, the people side of lean, which you know, I think, well, that, that, that it's not even a side. I think it's a vast majority of um, the challenge for, uh, for, for organizations. And, you know, I think people, um, you know, for my, my listeners, a lot of them in healthcare have have never worked in a factory like you and I have. I mean, I, I was always an engineer, not um, you're working on the front line. But, you know, I think people who haven't worked in a factory or haven't even visited factories sort of you know, just don't have an appreciation for the people side, um, the, the, the social side of, a, you know, the quote unquote socio-technical system type term that, that John Shook and others use. Can, can you talk a little bit more about uh, you know, the role of people in a factory and, and why that's so important. Oh, well, of course. I mean, um, I suppose the, the most straightforward thing to say is that nothing happens uh, in a factory or probably most other organizations without people making mm -hmm. them happen. You can't, uh, you know, I don't know of any machine that you can just turn on and, and let it churn out products um, because actually most markets aren't serviced by commodity products nowadays anyway. They're made to specific customer orders, and uh, and so you need people who know what they're doing to uh, to set machines up, to run the right quantity of parts uh, to the right specification. But uh, more importantly, it doesn't just take the people that are operating the machines. It needs uh, to take all kinds of other people, uh, those that are uh, the technical experts who might understand more about the processes. It also obviously needs. Uh, management oversight, people mm -hmm. that uh, are directing the business and make sure it's making money, which actually wouldn't last very long if it didn't, uh, looking after the cash flow as well. And um, But you also need to be able to bridge the gap between people that speak uh, profit and cash flow and people that speak uh, processes and machines and constraints. And so people need to get along with each other, which I guess mm -hmm. is the, uh, you know, the, the systematic element that you're talking about, which yeah. is uh, not always easy to do, but um, you know, when it happens, it's uh, it can be brilliant. Well, and and getting along with people, I and mean, maybe this comes back to I, I love your expression again, the balance of urgency and empathy. Um, where I think sometimes people misunderstand this this Toyota notion of respect for people, respect for humanity, and and getting along could be misinterpreted as you know being just being superficially nice or not challenging people. I mean, how how would you? describe or you know from what you've learned about finding that balance of, of pushing challenging people in a in a respectful way um i think i think well a lot of it comes from your motivation and uh and whether you really respect somebody or not mm. and uh respect the role that they have in the company i think it's really important to um to really believe that everybody in the in who's working in a company is doing an important role now, one thing that's, that's 
really important that uh, that Toyota production system thinking has contributed. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of important stuff TPS has contributed, but uh, but by stipulating that uh, that respect is one of the you know foundational building blocks, is that actually people need to respect those that actually add value to the process. And obviously, that's not always been the case in the history of manufacturing, where um, where people have viewed those that are adding value to be probably the least important of all and um and as represented being the, at the bottom of a hierarchy when in fact you know they just have a different role and uh and in fact adding value is the thing that customers need to pay for mm-hmm. so uh so yes of course it's an, it's i think tps corrects um maybe traditional manufacturing thinking by saying that yes people who are adding the value are you could argue are most important in the customer's eyes, mm-hmm. but actually everybody in a manufacturing plant has an important role and need to respect each other's role. I don't know if that answers your question yeah. or not. Yeah, and it does. And maybe to build upon that, um, you know, kind of coming back to your role as a leadership coach, um, I think one of the challenges uh, with with lean transformation starts with the challenge of, of personal transformation. And a lot of leaders have, years if not decades of accumulated habits and ways of operating and you know it's 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 one thing to sort of state or read or learn about what lean or tps mindsets are it's another thing to change so do you have some stories or what comes to mind thinking about that challenge of you know coaching an individual um to you know maybe go from just a a base understanding or lip service to really sort of trying to deeply embrace principles and, and operate with respect wow that's uh i think probably the 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 safest place i can start is by uh is by using my own example um because um uh, what i've come to understand is that as well as learning I, I need to unlearn all the time because there's certain things you pick up and if you're not careful you think you're progressing and you think that you're developing and uh and learning and perhaps getting ahead of others whereas in fact what you're doing a lot of the time is uh is uh absorbing things and uh and maybe you know feeding your own uh, sense of self and perhaps you're you're becoming less prepared to to listen to people and certainly less prepared to be taught and and um how it's relevant to to this conversation is that at one particular stage in my career i i thought i already knew quite a lot about lean and i thought i knew quite a lot about change management and uh, I started working for a management consulting company and thought actually I had a bit to offer. And uh, in fact, I was learning from um, somebody who just turned out to be the, the greatest influence on my career ever um, because he modeled um, how to do something. And I didn't even know that I needed to learn this. In fact, I had no idea what I didn't know. Um, but I was forced to unlearn it. And thankfully, I was only able to unlearn it because I was modeled a much better approach. So uh, so that humbled me. And, uh, and certainly, I think sometimes where people, including myself, aren't open to, uh, to being taught, then uh, we need to be shown. And uh, being shown is probably more powerful than, uh, than being taught anyway. And sometimes that's necessary for us, for us to unlearn. Well, so what what do you think um, beyond being exposed to a different way or, or having that 
modeled? I mean, what, what do you think made it click in, in your mind? Because a lot of people get exposed to people modeling the right behavior, but they come up with different reasons or excuses for why they're okay operating the way they've always operated. I mean, can, can you sort of pinpoint what, you know, what, what, what perhaps was, was that aha moment for yourself? Ah, oh, for me, uh, for me, it was simple because, um, because I, I was going into my first engagement with this, uh, this consulting company. And I, I thought that if, I mean, we were promising transformation, but, um, to be honest, I was, I would have been happy if we could, could have delivered maybe 10 to 15% improvement. And, uh, and what I actually found myself caught up in under the leadership of this uh, expert who'd been brought in was that, you know, suddenly we, we, we really were transforming this, uh, this, this pretty small, uh, manufacturing company, maybe about, you know, 50 or 60 people. Mm. It was a smaller learning environment, uh, crafted for, for people like me who were, who were fresh in. And, um, and so within four months, uh, we'd reduced the, the company from, uh, from two separate facilities to be condensed it to one facility. We doubled productivity. Lead time had collapsed from two months to, uh, to two days. And I, I couldn't believe we could, we, we'd achieve so much so quickly. If you'd have told me beforehand we could have done it, I, I would have, I would, I would not have believed it. Hmm. And, um, and to be honest, when I first saw the way in which this expert was behaving, uh, the first impression I had was actually as a bit unprofessional. And uh, with hindsight, looking back to see why I thought that is because it was uh, it was disrupting the professional norms that I'd assumed mm. through my previous experience. So I would have he wasn't being disre disrespectful in any way. Don't get me wrong, but he was deliberately being disruptive and and that disruptive behavior is necessary in order to manage change sometimes for example rather than uh, than arranging a meeting uh, which might be normal you go up and talk to someone straight away in order to get something done straight away hmm. um, you spend less of your time be behind your computer um, so that uh, you can actually um, uh, you know obviously go and go and see where things are happening on the shop floor sway uh, rather than uh, needing to uh, to analyze too much data first and so I mean can, can you tell a little bit more about that I mean what was what was disruptive or in in, in what way disruptive and and how was it necessary I think that um, um, well there's there's always uh, inertia in, in every organization and if you're going to make a radical change, you need to find some way of disrupting um, that organization in order to build momentum to overcome the inertia. And um, the disruptive behavior means, enables you to drive someone through, a, drive a group of people through a change management process respectfully, but actually leads them to a solution much more quicker than if you're able to just analyze the problem. So, so a key quality that I learned early on is, is being um, what I would call hypothesis driven. Mm. So you start with a hypothesis or a vision of what um, a system could look like. Let's be specific, Talking, looking at a manufacturing facility, in terms of what to change, I would always advocate looking at the complete system, a, a customer order fulfillment process, starting with uh, a customer ordering a product to then 
um, manufacturing it and shipping it. Mm -hmm. So the entire natural flow, if you look at that entire natural flow, that's what to start with because that's where the waste accumulates along that natural process because most of the organizational processes cut across that flow. But if you are able to look at that flow, um, you can then apply world-class principles, TPS principles and lean particularly uh, for a manufacturing operation um, and have a hypothesis of what it could what it could look like. You can then lead people through a design process but all the time you've got in your mind an idea of what it could look like so you can drive people to the answer more quickly. Um, I'm trying to describe everything there is to leading change very quickly which is <laughs> right. probably never a good idea but <laughs> but in essence it, it, it boils down to knowing what to do, uh, knowing how to do it mm -hmm. and also um, uh, just helping or bringing the right people together and helping them to behave in the right way in order to involve people and to and to get things done. So who were some of the mentors or, or influencers? Um, you know, I always like to ask people how they first got exposed to lean or TPS concepts. Who were who some of the, the organizations or people who influenced you in, in understanding and learning how to practice lean? Well, um, I probably started picking up bits of lean uh, along the way, um, probably even before I, I'd heard of the term lean. Um, so for example, I was sponsored for my university degrees by Shell. So I worked for a year before university uh, at an oil refinery and there I learned a lot about TBM, uh, which you could loosely consider part of lean. Um, then I went on to university and and um, it, it was a it was a great course. It was a course that was designed to plug the gap between um, managers and uh, and engineers, um, a manufacturing engineering course. And uh, so we learned a lot about lean during that course. And it was quite a vocational course. We spent a lot of, lot of time in industry. So so I did some value stream mapping at Land Rover. I then mm. uh, did a placement where I was implementing Kanban. Um, and a manufacturer of solar panels. So we got to practice what we were learning about. Um, but um, as I said, um, I would, a lot of this I was learning uh, knowledge and I could learn about things in practice, but the danger was that I picked up this tools-based approach to lean. And it was what I learned from this model, uh, from this um, person who modeled not just what to do but how to do it firstly in terms of what to do was the systematic approach um, in terms of how to do it it was uh, it was a model of change that uh, that, I, that I still practice that uh, that has a very simple diagnose design implement refine four phases uh, and that brings everyone along um, on a shared process to um, towards redesigning uh, a value stream Mm -hmm. So, so the name of the, the model, the name of this person who modelled this to me is uh, it was Blair McCallum. He was brought in. I was working for uh, McKinsey, was the was the consulting company, uh, a particular part of McKinsey called the Production System Design Centre. And uh, McKinsey, uh, as as you might know, it's got a, a big name in in strategic consulting. Mm -hmm. But more and more McKinsey clients were asking for their for help 
in implementing particularly a lot of the operational excellence practices they were hearing about and obviously they heard about lean as they're asking for help to implement lean mm -hmm. and so mckinsey thought that well actually we haven't got a good track record in lean let's let's bring consultants in and and, and bring an expert in train the consultants and prepare them in more of a sheltered learning environment so they can then go on and uh, lead transformations for our clients so that was the the part of uh mckinsey that i joined um, back in uh, 1999, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah. and Blair was my trainer, and um, and he was the biggest, uh, by far the biggest influence in in terms of me learning about lean and learning about how to change. Yeah, and and you're probably trying to help sort of uh, pay that back in different ways when you talk about the the danger of people picking up a tools based approach. You're, you're working with people and trying to help. Um, help prevent that right yes of course of course uh, and in fact um, I, I don't I, I prefer not to use the word lean um, because often it feeds into people's ideas about a tools based um, uh, lean and a lot of people have ideas about what lean is and what lean isn't in fact a lot of com most companies I work for nowadays think they've already done lean so it's not particularly mm -hmm. helpful then trying to advise people on lean um, so uh, I, I know that you use a similar term. You use the word uh, uh, lame, right? It's an acronym. It's a, a forced acronym, right? Lean, yeah. lean, lean as mistakenly explained, or the, you know, there's there's variations there. But um, yeah, I mean, I think one one of the aspects or an example of lame would be people saying you know, sort of past tense, oh, we learned lean or, or we did that. We implemented that to imply either that they're they're done changing, they're done learning, they're done evolving. Um, that's it's it's troubling when we, when we hear people talking that way. Right. So, yeah, well, that's right. And now we've, now we've done lean. What's next? Yeah. Well, yeah, there, there's a whole catalog of articles and approaches of people saying what's beyond lean yeah I think it's also um, responsibility of lean practitioners um, you know not to uh, promote jargon mm -hmm. uh, I think actually it's wrong to encourage people to implement lean in the first place because the lean is if you're talking if someone's already talking about we want to implement lean then you have to ask them why because unless they really know the problems they want to solve in their business they're not really going to solve those problems very well uh, essentially all they're doing is importing a solution which is obviously never makes sense yeah so people need to understand their needs and the needs of their business uh, in order to be able to solve them properly well and so maybe you know the, the, those questions um maybe leads into one of the other things we were going to talk about you you've already alluded to this um you know, as it says on your website you talk about three central key questions to ask leaders. Can you kind of walk through those questions and, and maybe you know an example of applying those questions? Yes, uh, yes, certainly. Um, I guess what you're referring to is uh, is is the three types of questions to ask in terms of um, uh, I think I already mentioned. Firstly, um, what you need to do. Mm -hmm. Um, so, in other words, understanding your problem and, and what to do about it. And uh, as, as I've already said, I would always advocate whenever you're talking about an operation, that you need to uh, to look at it end to end, because otherwise, if you're looking just a piece of the operation, 
and then you can be spending a lot of time addressing problems that are caused upstream. And so if you actually can look at the, the, the whole piece, then you're able to collapse the whole value stream and, and so much more waste than you would if you were just looking at one particular part of it. So I would say the approach to, to um, or the answer really for the question would always relate to insightful redesign. So insightful, applying the right insight for the right types of processes because every manufacturing process is different and and then uh, redesigning it end to end. So that's that's number one in terms of what to do, insightful redesign. Uh, the second question then is is how to, to change. And um, I think often that's, there's so much focus given to what to do, um, all those misunderstanding there, but sometimes how to change is often an afterthought. But obviously people then further down the journey, they discover all the pitfalls and, uh, and realize that their organization is no different to, to any other. And you know, these complex systems are at work and, um, and some, a lot of people just give up or think that transformation is impossible. So, um, so certainly I, I advocate um, a simple shared process, this diagnose, design, implement, refine, and bringing everyone along you. Uh, in a value stream and having having a leader to lead people through that process is uh, is really important right. and then um, well in terms of the third question I suppose is who and uh, and there's a lot of work that uh, that the leader needs to do which is, I guess why a lot of my focus is on coaching the leader because there's so many things that can go wrong and and I well, it's probably worth me mentioning at this point that I, I hate the term ch change management I've got this particular bee in my bonnet why, about it. why, why, why is that um, I think because a lot of managers, they use the term change management and and they assume that their role as a manager is to manage change. Where, well, obviously that's part of it. Change does need to be managed very carefully, but also managers need to change. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, managers assume that change is something that's required from everybody else. <laughs> and in fact, managers need to change as much as anybody else, probably more than other people, you know, because it's their thinking that shaped the organization already. And, and one of the biggest problems in, uh, in, in change management, or I prefer to use the mm -hmm. term change leadership, mm -hmm. is, is that people tend to focus on what can be seen. So this is why, again, the people focus on the what, people focus on the operator practices, what they see on the shop floor, but they don't stop to think about the, the things that are unseen that have influenced that. So for example, the incentive systems, mm -hmm. uh, the the management culture, um, the uh, uh, maybe the, the employment contract, and individual individual incentives that people might have. So, if you if you try and change an operator practice, but you haven't actually changed the incentive system that's driven that in the past, then obviously it's not going to be sustained, or it's not going to work very well if people are right. still being driven by something else so and these things need to be recognized by managers but they can only be changed by managers mm -hmm. so that's why um, uh, part of, uh, a lot of my role in coaching leaders is to recognize the things that need to be changed that can't be seen and a lot of those are cultural aspects of uh, of organizational life yeah well I think you know there, there are interesting parallels and challenges in healthcare where that quote-unquote operator is a, a very highly educated, highly skilled physician or surgeon and, yeah. you know, uh, 
uh, hospital executives, I think are too often trying to change behavior without, as you were saying, looking at underlying incentives, systematic factors that um, would, would drive behavior or condition people to act um, a certain way. That's right. And it's not pointing uh, fingers or blaming people because a lot of times managers are acting in a particular way because they believe it's it's uh, wholly the right thing to do. So, for example, I, I worked in, in one plant in the States where uh, there was a, a very strong management drive to meet their you know, EBITDA targets every month and uh, probably more more excessive in this plant than I've ever seen anywhere else. Mm. And uh, and you've got to admire that um, uh, resolve. And it's, a, it's a noble aspiration. They really wanted to, to, well, to meet their targets and do their bit for the division that they were part of. But uh, they didn't realize that what that was happening was driving people uh, under them to do abnormal mm. things mm -hmm. that created you know uh, more trouble and uh, and what they needed to be to do was to be able to have that honest conversation between themselves saying well how can we work with uh, people further up the leadership chain in order to take a one-time hit in our EBITDA results so we're not always chasing the next month and so that we can actually demonstrate the consistency that's needed to to implement the structural changes that will get us even more mm. in uh, in three months' time. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the time, um, people are part of a culture and they can't see the way in which that's driving um, um, you know, negative things and actually restraining their overall potential, even though they're thinking that uh, that it's uh, one of their strengths. Well, and. Yeah, you, you touch on on some of these points and lessons learned in uh, your your chapter in the book, practicing lean, and and thank you again uh, mm. for that contribution. Talking about not just technical challenges, but um, change management, or if, if not change leadership, um, lessons learned. So um, thank you again for that contribution. It's a pleasure. Um, before that contribution, you have uh, your own book, which which I wanted to give you a chance to talk about and let the listeners hear about. Um, it's titled "The Incredible Transformation of Gregory Todd." Um, what you know, if you can tell us about the book and, and maybe start off by talking about you referred to this earlier, not using the term "lean." Why do you deliberately not call this a "quote unquote" lean book? What is it? How would you frame it? Um, well, I think. The, well, first of all, the reason I, I I try not to use the term lean, and 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 in this environment, I feel safe using the word lean because I, I'm imagining most people uh, that are tuning into Lean Blog are doing so because they believe in lean and they think that it's a great thing. So uh, I'm less concerned in this uh, particular environment. But but um, the reason why I'm cautious about using the term lean is because I've 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 come across so many people that misunderstand it and I didn't want to feed into those misconceptions so first and foremost I guess my book is a is a book about uh, leading change and and yes it applies to all kinds of organizations I've chosen to set it in a uh, manufacturing organization because that's really you know uh, my preferred environment and it's also the environment where I, I suppose I, I feel uh, most expert in commenting on on what to do mm -hmm. Um, in terms of the insightful redesign, but uh, it's a novel about uh, leadership and managing change, and 
And um, I didn't want it to be branded as a lean novel because uh, the main people that I want to reach are uh, are leaders of organisations, and um, and probably they're the people that have the most preconceived notions about what lean is and whether they've already done it. Yeah. And uh, and yes, uh, what I really want to do is to be able to um, uh, is to is to to influence those people mm-hmm. without um, you know tangling myself up in their preconceived notions yeah now who is the the character the namesake character in the title Gregory Todd uh, who, who's going through this incredible transformation yes yeah, so Gregory Todd runs a, a furniture business that uh, that um, bears his name he uh, the business makes sofas and chairs and uh, and he bought the business out um, from the person that founded the business uh, a couple of years ago, or well, he, he bought it out a couple of years ago, and he's he's already done um, much of many of the things that he's always wanted to do. Um, now he had full control, um, but he then starts running into trouble, and uh, he know he need, he knows he needs to do more. He's just not quite sure uh, what it is he needs to do. And w- what I've tried to do in this book is to is to give people a flavour of what it's really like to lead change. So that hopefully it will resonate with with anyone that's been through a change process or even considered going through a lifelike change process. Because I think the reason I chose to write it as a novel is is for two reasons. One was to uh, is because it conveys that unique flavour that mm-hmm. a lot of textbooks can't. Because if you read a textbook about leading change, then uh, then I find it hard to disagree with a lot of the content, but it's still very hard to aggregate it all again and practice it afterwards, particularly when you marry it to an organization that's already full of complex personalities and constraints. Um, it, uh, you know, the, it's very difficult to convey the lifeblood of, of leading change through a traditional textbook. But uh, the second reason for setting it as a novel is because um, I know that I was only influenced by um, being shown how to lead change and so I hope that by writing a novel and by showing other people uh, how to lead change and also more most or probably just as importantly that some of the pitfalls to avoid then uh, then other people might be able to uh, um, to learn more and, and go on to succeed in their own organizations yeah well, and I think you know there's an interesting challenge there. When you know, if, if there's a certain set of readers who might say, "Well, I'm not interested in lean, or I've already done that, or I don't want to read that," I wonder is there a similar resistance to the idea of going through an incredible transformation? I mean, they might say, "Well, my company needs to be transformed," and this comes back to the question again of, you know, well, everyone else needs to change, you know, but 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 not me. How, how do you find people? Um, responding to the book, I mean, you know, have you, what kind of feedback have you gotten from people who've read it and, and been impacted in some way? You know, when you said uh, that I don't need to change, my company does. You sounded just like Gregory Todd then, <laughs> right? And I, so, and, uh, I, and I'm speaking on behalf of I've heard others say that. I'm not saying I don't need to change, but a lot of yeah, no, that's want, right. Yeah. No, I, I, <laughs> I, I appreciate that, uh, but I'm sure there's something of Gregory Todd in all of us, really. Um, uh, so the the response I've had, I've had a, a, I've been encouraged by a lot of good response. Um, firstly, people just saying, oh, I felt like I was in the book, you know, at several stages of my career, you know, from the change agent trying to get things done to the general manager that's uh, that's you know 
trying to do the right thing but unsure of really you know what he should be doing mm. um to the person on the shop floor who is just um just being buffeted about in the waves and um and just is uh trying to um keep his head down and do the best he can yeah so um so yes it, it's been um it's been good that i've had a people have been able to relate to the book um, I guess it's early days yet, whether or not uh, it's it's helping people to transform their own businesses. But I, I really hope that it will, and certainly to start the conversation about not just what to change, but uh, but how to lead change, which is uh, you know what it's all about. Yeah. And so you are working on uh, another book right now, a little bit different um, different style um, of book. Can you kind of give the, the readers a preview of uh, what you're working on right now? Yes, uh, sure. So um, the, the follow-up book will be called simply How to Lead Change. And um, the idea is to have um, a series of, uh, of, of pithy lessons, probably just one lesson to each double spread, um, in terms of the questions we've been talking about. So uh, knowing uh, what to change, how to change, and who should be changing, and how should they be, be behaving. So, uh, yeah, that's um, uh, I'm developing that at the moment, and I'm hoping it will be ready uh, this autumn. Great. And, um, you know, people, readers, uh, or listeners, um, of the podcast, um, if they're in the U.S. or other countries, they can find the book through Amazon, or, or where else do you recommend people finding you, finding the book online? Uh, yes, it's um, it's uh, it's available. Uh, it's available on Amazon in the in the states, uh, in in Europe too, and uh, and lots of other online stores. Uh, it is going to be stocked um, stocked in uh, in uh, in high street retailers as well, hopefully. So um, just keep your eye out for it and um, uh, or if you need information on it then always check out my own website which is uh, uh, ajshepherd.com well uh, Andy thank you for um, again for your contribution to the book practicing lean which you know people can can find through www.practicinglean.com um, all of the proceeds from that book are, are being donated to the Louise H. Batts Patient Safety Foundation. Um, we're uh, over $1,000, and, and now that the book is available in paperback, uh, format sales have uh, have picked up. That's interesting to see, and uh, hopefully that means even more uh, of, a, of an impact and a donation to um, the foundation. So, um, Andy, again, thank you for, for your contribution there, Chapter 14 of Practicing Lean. Um, thank you for your your thoughts and and comments today. Do you have any sort of final kind of other piece of advice that's uh, that's burning to, to uh, that that to come out of you that you'd like to leave um, the listeners with before we wrap up? I I, th I just think I'd uh, encourage everybody to to keep on learning and and keep on unlearning, um, and uh, yeah, and probably to focus on the latter because that's probably. Uh, um, gets less attention. Yeah, and and I think that was one of the themes um, we try to, to bring across in, in practicing lean. And, and and thank you again for your reflections of um, continuing to learn, continuing to practice, and 
and get better at, at what we do. So um, again, our, our guest today has been Andy Shepard. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for talking today. It's great to talk to you after collaborating uh, a little bit on the book. Thank you, Mark. Thanks very much for, for having me on. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.